Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about how to use data to drive hiring, training, and onboarding decisions. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever for creating a world that we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. With me on the show today is Marcella Pineros, Head of Sales Enablement at Stripe, and Joe DiDonato, Chief of Staff at Baker Communications. Marcella, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been working in sales enablement for over 20 years. I think that's when you stop counting (laughs) officially. And it's been a wild ride. It's given me a chance to work in academia, in nonprofit, public sector, with organizations like NASA and the Department of Energy. And it's also given me the chance to work in startup and enterprise from Citigroup, Nissan, Red Hat, Oracle, Microsoft, et cetera. And I spent uh, five years building the sales enablement function at New Relic, growing our team to focus on sales and technical and customer enablement. And today I am leading the global sales enablement function at Stripe, which is extremely exciting. It's a rocket ship Stripe right now that's letting us help our users build the financial infrastructure that they need to grow their revenue for at least the next decade and beyond. Joe, you should require no introduction, but for people who haven't been following you, tell our listeners about yourself, please. Okay. Like you said, I'm the chief of staff for Baker Communications. I too write for Forbes. My background has been in the world of corporate education. I uh, ran PeopleSoft's education, Oracle's education in the early days. Then I joined the uh, world of the venture capitalists. We launched probably 21 companies in the ed tech space and beyond. One of the companies you'd probably recognize is LeapFrog Toys. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you. So in today's episode of BCI's Distinguished Sales Leader Series, we're going to focus on the shift of using data science to drive our decisions in the areas of hiring, training, coaching, and onboarding. Marcella and Joe joined the show today to show how data can help pinpoint areas that need to be addressed at a more granular level and how that shift in thinking can help you raise your sales team's revenue and profit contributions in a drastically shorter period of time. So Joe, let's start with you. What do you mean when you talk about data-driven sales enablement? That's kind of a handle that we came up with at Baker Communications. What it means basically is not doing things by the seat of your pants, but now that we have reliable data, using that data to help with decisions on hiring, with decisions on training people and coaching, and then, and then of course, onboarding. So what data gives us is something that we never had before. It's very hard to hire sales reps if you want to think about that. Sales reps are are really good at selling things and selling themselves is second nature. So it's very hard to get down to the nuts and bolts of the job role you're looking at and and the industry you're looking at and, and addressing all the pieces. So we take a very detailed look at all the salespeople, sales management, even the sales leaders at their sales DNA, if you will, their sales competencies and things that you don't usually see in a conversation, let's say, of an interview will come out in that data. What it does is allows the manager to look at where the gaps are, the strengths and the gaps for each person that's coming on board or a replacement hire. Once you know those gaps, then you can lay out a very individualized training plan and a very individualized coaching plan. 
and then if your existing staff, the same thing. What we're doing is trying to get them to their next level of performance. Everybody's got some weaknesses as well as the strengths, and it's our job to try to get those weaknesses upgraded and so they can be more successful in their roles. So that's really what data-driven sales enablement is. The sales enablement group is the team like Marcella heads up that kind of puts all those training and coaching plans together, takes care of all the onboarding, all the uh, hard stuff that goes on in the sales world. So then let's follow that up with what do you consider the baseline if you're collecting data for each of these areas? What is the baseline and why does that matter? We like to establish the baseline just so you can see progress and you know set up some key performance indicators so that you know that you're on target and actually fixing the things that need fixing. In one of the previous episodes, we talked about what's your 100-day plan, Joe, to turn sales around. A lot of that started with, you know, sales management system in place, a sales process. And then the very next step was to evaluate your entire team to find out, you know, where their strengths and weaknesses were. And that's where you get the baseline. The assessment is the first thing that I would do if I was trying to turn around a sales team. And once I have the baseline of where their strengths and weaknesses are, then I can measure that again six months, a year, whenever I want to do that to make sure they're progressing. I can turn over the results of that to their sales management and say, here's the things that the assessment is saying uh, that they need some coaching on. And when you look at these categories of competencies, 10 of them are skill-based. So those are the things that you can teach people how to be better negotiators, how to be better closers of business or do better research on the front end, those sorts of things. Then there's six that are more about the person's DNA. It's looking at things like your personal way of buying something. Uh, if you're a person that likes to get 27 research reports on a car and read them all and then decide on which car you're going to get, then when your customer does that, you're going to be okay with that. You know, I understand why you would want to do that. But what that does is just lengthens out the uh, whole cycle and introduces a lot of competitors and so forth. So that's something that can hurt your sales, especially if one of your competitor's sales reps just says, hey, I'm going to buy a Porsche, you know, <laughs> and they don't care about all that research and everything. They just want that car. So your lunch is going to get eaten by that. And there's no second place awards in, in sales. You either win the deal or you don't win the deal, right? So that baseline is very important. You have 10 trainable skill competency areas. And then there's six that are in this notion of the DNA. And then five of them are, are more like gating things. Are they motivating? Are they motivated, self-motivated, uh, things like that? They take responsibility for what they do. Those are the things that sometimes become a gate. Sometimes the assessments say don't hire. Ten years ago, probably wouldn't have said these same words. But now the data has got a pretty high predictive validity. It's 91%. That beats all of the uh, turnover factors that we see in the industry. So I, I tend to go with it. But if the data tells you to hire that person and you hire that person, that person has a 92% chance of finishing in the top half of your sales team. That's pretty good. If the data tells you not to hire that person because it's not a good fit for your industry or the job role, that's really important on this. They may have been successful on another job role, another company, another industry, but in your particular industry, in this particular job role, if it tells you don't hire and you ignore that, 
70% of them leave within six months. It's that reliable. So I wish we had that kind of test for every job in the company. You know, as uh, chief of staff, I wish I had one for instructional design. I wish I had one for all the functions in the company. But that's really what the baseline gives you. It tells you where they are when you start the process and then what you need to do from a training and coaching standpoint. Thank you. So let me ask just a couple of clarifying questions and test my understanding. So the first 10, the competencies are trainable. That's correct. The second six are more things that are personal style, how you buy, how you think about sales as a career and things like that. They're coachable. They're coachable. Okay. They're more like an attribute. You can't train a bank teller to be honest. I mean, that's an attribute they got to come to the table with, right? So that's what we say in, in the world of corporate education is we can train skills, but you need higher attributes. And that's what those things are the tendencies of that person as a, as a sales rep. Are they representative of the 2.1 million people that have gone through these assessments? They have these six qualities. They're, they're solid. And the other ones are more gating. The last five are things that you can't really figure out, but they're not motivated. They, they don't take responsibility. They like to push it off on marketing or sales enablement or somebody else when things go wrong that's when you'll probably get a don't hire recommendation from the assessment. Those are things that are hard to find. If they're just saying, nope, that wasn't my fault, that's somebody else's fault, they're hard to coach. They won't learn. So then this helps me distinguish between what's coachable, what's trainable, and what isn't mine to do, that this person is just going to be a bad fit long-term. For that particular role. Yeah. They might have a great career on customer support someplace, you know, inbound calls or something like that. But there's so many different sales functions. I mean, there's probably 65 different titles that you you can look at. And then there's this element of a hunter versus a farmer. So the hunter is looking for new logos to bring to the company. And that's a special skill set. It's a combination of, of some of the competencies that bring out that hunter instinct. And then there's the relationship building part the account management, the farmer side of things, where they hold the relationship together. They look for new opportunities within that. It's not the same as prospecting and research and finding the customer to bring them to the table. We thought we'd see differences because of different cultures and everything, but it kind of stayed almost the same throughout the world. Let's shift to Marcella. At Stripe, do you use a similar process to ascertain strengths and weaknesses and also these kind of no-go for a specific role categories? It was amazing when I joined Stripe to see that we had already invested in doing a competency baseline assessment with our existing sales org. I mean, it's so rare to have that depth of insight when you're just getting started with a function. I called it a two glass of wine read. (laughs) It was nearly 200 pages worth of like really valuable information. What I loved about it is that it does include information on attributes and it includes information on skills and on mindset. And it breaks it down by leader, by manager at the individual level. So that gives me the competency model that we're using to underpin the programs we're designing for soft skills development. And we say, you know, we want our revenue organization to be the highest EQ in the industry. And we also know that we want our team to consistently earn the right to speak to our users because they're demonstrating curiosity and empathy and they have a a user first mindset. 
And that's something that we are calibrating for in the assessment from both the hiring perspective and also from the enablement perspective. So assessing strengths and weaknesses is only one part of the system. And I think, you know, Joe mentioned this, there's a whole cross-functional system of work that needs to be in place with recruiting, with sales ops, with leaders, with the field themselves. And our recruiting team at Stripe is amazing, right? So they've been working with us to make sure that our competency model is built at the top of the candidate funnel. So when folks are coming in, we're bringing in people that have the strengths that we're looking for, that have the mindset that we're looking for as we're creating a user-obsessed sales organization. I keep telling them, you know, you can bring me somebody that's a seven and I'll get them to a 10. But if you bring me somebody that's a two, I'm not making any promises whatsoever, right? So there is a commitment from the organization to make sure that we are hiring for the profile we need. And then we have the data to back it up. Well, and having worked in organizations where people didn't have these kinds of assessments, the amount of energy we waste and from the leadership lens, we make the commitment to bring someone in. So there is some commitment that if we're committing to them joining, if we've made it a hire of someone who doesn't fit and yet they're honest and all all of the positive qualities, it's a drain on resources for everyone in the team. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The hiring process at Stripe is extremely rigorous. It's by far the most rigorous framework I've seen. And I've worked in many, many different organizations and with many different organizations. And a lot of that is making sure that we are getting the right fit from a mindset and from an attribute perspective, just upfront, right? Just knowing that if we're going to invest in something, let's invest in building the skills. Using a banking example, you're getting a, a cashier or a teller that is mostly honest, and you're trying to get them to be more honest, like just that level of effort is extraordinarily different (laughs) than getting someone who knows how to build relationships. And we're wanting to get them to think through more of like a problem finding mindset. So it's, you know, it's a little bit different. Can you say a little bit more about the mindsets? Because I think most of us know skills and attributes. A lot of my work is about mindsets. And I'm curious if you define it the same way I do. Probably the easiest mindset to talk about is a coaching mindset, right? When we're talking about leaders and managers, whether or not they have a coaching mindset, when we're talking about individuals, whether or not they have a growth mindset, right? Are they approaching every situation with curiosity and with acknowledgement of where they are, this absolute self-awareness of where they can grow, and then engaging and taking those opportunities to grow? In sales in particular, that reflects very, very well with your tolerance for prospecting for cold calling, for being shot down and for being rejected time and time and time again? Are you taking that as an opportunity to grow and to see how you can modify your technique to get better? Or are you taking it as a fixed mindset where you're just getting shut down? You're saying, okay, well, that's a no. I'm going to turn around and walk away, right? So I I feel like it is the lens through which you're viewing your experiences. I love that, the lens through which you're viewing your experiences. Can you coach to that or... Are you willing to, or is that something that's just too much work for when you expect someone to come in and be productive? The distinction is whether or not they are resistant to it or they are just unaware. Okay. If you have someone that is resistant, then I mean, it's the same thing as trying to get into a sales deal where you have a detractor and everybody is a detractor. Like, is that where you want to spend your time? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to spend your time where you have people that are neutral and you're wanting to get them to be champions, right? So here it's really, if you have somebody that is open to it, or not actively against it, then sure, you can 100% coach to that. Beautiful. Joe, can you tell us a little bit more about the mindsets that you test for? 
Yes, sure. There's really six primary ones. I'll go through uh, each one of them, uh, just give you a little bit more depth to them. So first one's the need for approval. Now, you would think that you would want your customers to always like you, right? A seller who needs to be liked has a a high need for approval. But this is kind of like the coaching world. Sometimes you have to ask the difficult questions. And if you don't ask those difficult questions and you don't make some of those call outs that you need to make out, they turn out to be blind spots and they come back to bite you later on. That's one of them that's coachable. Another one is controlling emotions. You're going to run into objections at some point along the line. If you've done your work up front, you won't run into as many, but you know, maybe somebody will say, hey, your prices are a lot higher than your competitors. You can't react emotionally to that. You can't start tearing down your competitor. You have to have that EQ level that Marcel is talking about. And you have to say, okay, let me make a note of that. I'll get you an answer to our pricing model and what we can do there. Is there any other objections or any other things that would stand in the way of us doing a deal? And you'll pull out the rest of the objections. And now you've got a list of things that you come back and address. Supportive beliefs is another one. These are things like, I don't have the time to prospect. If you believe that, you have no pipeline. If prospects are happy with their current vendor, for sure, I won't be able to close them. I can't sell without marketing collateral. You know, that's another one. I have to submit proposals to close deals. So that's the supportive beliefs that you would have. Are they coachable? Yeah, we think there's some of them are coachable. It's how much work is involved in all that. The assessment's going to point these things out to you. So that's three of them. Comfortable discussing money. That's another one. That's very difficult to do if you think $1,000 is a big deal to spend and you're, and you're selling million-dollar solutions. So unless you can understand the value you're bringing to the party here, your reaction when they said something about price would be, yeah, you're right. You know, that's really expensive. And so that's something you got to be coached on. The other one is handling rejection. I think the numbers in our world of sales are you start out with 100 prospects. They come down to 10 that you can work with. Three of those are going to be active deals that you're going to propose on and only one's going to close. So if you think about the level of rejection there, 99 people said no. And you got to be able to handle that. Those are the kind of underlying beliefs, the mindset are coachable. Those are the kinds of things to show the folks that go through the assessments. Thank you for clarifying that. So Marcella, how did this process help you to create better individual learning and coaching paths? It's funny because when I first joined Stripe, I was given the opportunity to start building my team. And the very first job that I posted was for a lead data strategist and People were really genuinely surprised. I think they expected for me to start hiring trainers and instructional designers that would jump right in and start building learning paths. But the truth is, I, I feel very, very strongly that an enablement organization will thrive or be successful when it can break away from being purely a content generation engine, right? If all you're doing is creating great content and pushing it out and blessing people with, yay, you're certified because you read the document or you took the workshop, you're missing the mark. The reality is that we need enablement functions that focus on, oh, you did it successfully on the job. I can check the box and say that you're enabled. So when we're able to make that shift and focus on proactively tracking warning signals from the data that help us intervene before the behaviors become a problem for the business or before those behaviors reach our users or our customers, that's the enablement organization that will thrive. So you need 
a data strategy that you can collect information around what people are doing, how they're doing it, and that's going to empower you to then design enablement that'll move the needle in the form of individual learning. I was really fortunate that when I posted that job, I was able to snag who I believe is the best enablement data strategist in the business. His name is T.D. Haynes. And he pioneered an approach for us that really helps us target individual learning and coaching interventions. His framework acknowledges that you can't use a one-size-fits-all to enable people. And it's more than just making something role-specific or making it geo-specific. It's about truly targeting through data how we support the individual. So I'll give you an example. The way you would coach a top performer who isn't engaging in enablement at all is very different for how you'd prepare an intervention for someone that's doing all the enablement, doing all the things, taking all the quizzes, going to all the workshops, and still getting poor sales results, right? So you really need to be able to tailor and target to the specific needs of the individual. And we use the assessment to tell us from a capabilities perspective what people are capable of. But the key part you know, of the narrative is also understanding what people are doing, not just what they're capable of doing, but what they're actually doing on the job. So we're really focusing on how to track and assess why top performers succeed, why folks might underperform. We're keeping our eyes out on what is actually being done in the field, and that's how we then turn around and build the learning paths. It's a journey. We're in the early stages, but the vision is clear, and I firmly believe that the path forward is paved with great lessons we're going to learn. And I understand your team is global Does this differ in different countries, different languages, different cultures? Because I imagine just how you coach could vary dramatically based on geographic culture as well as the company culture in different places. I would say that the company culture is very strong and the philosophy is users first. And that doesn't change if you're in APAC, in EMEA, in LATAM, in North America, it doesn't change. It is a users first company culture. And the behaviors and the mindset that support that are the same throughout. What might change is a sales motion. What might change are is some of the sales collateral that we leverage. So that might change, but the attributes, the capabilities, the mindset, I feel is very much consistent throughout. But at Stripe, we have a users first mindset. So what we want is instead to partner with our user to take a look at their landscape and to be able to see, wow, you know what? They have this threat in their environment. They may not even know it's there. We're going to hunt it for them and we're going to eliminate that threat for them. And we're going to then come back and show them and we're going to partner so that eventually they have the ecosystem that they really want to thrive. So it's, it's definitely a little bit of a tweak to the mindset. While it may seem like a little bit of a tweak to you, to me, that seems like a significant pivot in whether or not I'm willing to engage in a conversation. Because if I feel like the salesperson is an ally rather than someone who's trying to pull something out of me or my wallet, yeah, I really don't want to talk to them. This seems incredibly significant. It's the same thing with you know some of the mindset that Joe was mentioning earlier, right? You're ability to control emotions. I see that as emotional resilience Mm -hmm. and your ability to be disliked, right? As long as you're starting from a foundation of respect and you're starting from a foundation of empathy, you're not just showing up and being a jerk because you're okay with being a jerk. You're showing up and willing to ask the tough questions because you genuinely believe that the questions you're asking are going to help the person on the other end of that call. Mm -hmm. 
because you truly feel that what you are doing is going to benefit them and it's going to bring them closer to their outcomes, closer to their goals. So when you have that as a foundation, all of these mindset things, they do take a little bit of a shift. It's not about you achieving and retiring your quota. It's about you creating change and tangible business outcomes for your users to the point that they just keep coming back for more because they know that when they get a call from you, it's in their best interest to pick up. Well, yeah, they shift from clients to partners. A hundred percent. What we uh, like to preach to our sales team is the two most important qualities you can bring to the job is a curiosity and empathy. So the curiosity causes you to keep asking more questions to get closer and closer to their problems. And then the empathy part of it is understanding the significance of those problems when they talk about it and then be willing to help them solve those problems. Mm -hmm. I feel like you can't underscore that enough. I'll tell you, I have my phone on silent all the time because I'm getting calls 5.30 in the morning, 6 a.m., undoubtedly from people on the East Coast that are trying to sell me something and they just see a phone number on a prospect list, right? These are people that are not approaching the world with empathy (laughs) and I'm not likely to buy from them. And in the same way, I'll have other folks that we've initiated conversations and then they follow up with three calls within a 45 minute span because for them, it's really, that is the most important thing is get to get me on the phone, but they are nowhere near on my radar of important things right now. It definitely works to just pause for a second and think through, am I doing this for the best interest of the person I'm connecting with? Or is this really just about me? Thank you. I really appreciate that distinction. So Jill, let's go back to you. How do people calculate their own costs and calculate an ROI? Let me uh, just put some numbers around that. So we know from uh, DePaul University who has a sales training program. They did a lot of research and they found $29,000 is the average cost to find and recruit a new salesperson. Roughly $36,000 is the industry average to train a person, not only on selling, but your products and your offerings and how you bring value to the customer. So those are two fixed numbers. The third number is the big variable. If you have low-quoted people, the cost of losing and turnover doesn't seem as high. If they're carrying a $100,000 salary, average time to replace a $100,000 quota person is probably two to four months. So you have that lost opportunity. So, you know, two twelfths or four twelfths of that 100000 But when you get into million-dollar salespeople, that takes usually about 6.2 months is the number that DePaul found was the average time to replace a rep in a territory. So that's not only finding that rep that can sell a million dollars worth of product or services, but also training them on your products, introducing them into the client base, letting them get a chance to build trust. So what happens in that 6.2 months, if you're carrying a million dollars, is it's over half a million dollars in lost opportunity. That's part of the calculation. Total cost, the numbers roughly turn out to be about $580,700 every time you lose a million dollar person. So that's the ROI that you have to worry about. It's so inexpensive to invest in the assessments and they give you so much data that it's silly not to do that. I mean, it'd be like I've said before, going to a doctor who doesn't believe in doing lab work or MRIs or x-rays. I mean, what does that leave? Guesswork? I, I wouldn't listen to a doctor who didn't do any lab work. 
And I think companies that don't use data are going to fall behind. I really do. It just doesn't make sense in my mind anymore to not use data. Let's shift back then to the data. Does BCI recommend any key performance indicators to track baseline and improvement? Because you've talked a lot about how the data is used, but you don't have a clear picture exactly of which data and which key performance indicators that you're tracking. Yeah, and that's really unique to the companies. Stripe is going to be very unique in in what they're going after. Some other companies may be wanting to get more new logos, however they get it. Maybe it's entry into a a whole new market space. So those will become key performance indicators. And then the usual suspects, which are going to be revenue performance and, and things like that. We have a publication that somebody sends a note to us, I'll send to them. We track about 21 key performance indicators and how to calculate them. Again, it's very unique to each particular customer with problems they're trying to solve. Maybe it's a competitor that's come into their space or disruptor. Stripe is actually a disruptor in a way, you know, from the old, old ways of buying and selling and using banks and (laughs) they're taking it to a whole new level. Stripe, by the way, is a service we use, and it's really helpful. So thank you for disrupting, by the way. (laughs) So Joe, do you have a a story of an actual place where you've used data and it made a huge difference? One company just had an unbelievable turnover rate. They were at 53% sales turnover rate. I couldn't believe it. They did the exit interviews and the reasons they were being given were, well, we have bad sales management. They, the company's products weren't really good fits for the marketplace. But yet in all that noise, they had some, some really top performers that were nailing it. You kind of have to worry about where they got the data. So they got the data from the people that left. So they're always going to maybe not take responsibility for what they were doing. But actually, they weren't responsible. They were bad hiring decisions. And once they went over to these data science of using the assessments and so forth, that rate came down from 55. It went down to 15%. In the end, they skyrocketed. So the sales team is the engine for the company. And to not give that engine the fuel it needs to do its job is crazy. And that example was not striped, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful example. And for our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. We are not done. Join us for our next episode with Joe and Marcella talking about how to use data to drive hiring, training, and onboarding decisions. Thanks for inviting us, Marie. We look forward to having the the next conversation with you. It's been a ton of fun. Thank you both.